0: Course on Heritage Radio Network. My name is Katie Kiefer, and my co-host and partner in crime is
1: Patrick Martins of Heritage Foods. Hello, everybody.
0: (laughs) Hello, everybody. Patrick has his shades on, so he looks good. Super super uber cool today. Um, we have a couple of announcements to make, and I'm gonna start right off with the first one. Uh, New York City's craft beer week is just around the corner, beginning on Friday, September 24th, and running through Sunday, October 3rd. Put those dates in your your calendar, folks. To kick off this annual series, the Whole Foods Market at the Bowery is hosting a beer and food pairing event in their beer room. How cool is that? Oscar Blues is on tap and Chef Jacques Gautier of Park Slope's Palo Santo is cooking up one of his South American delights to accompany the beer. The food tasting goes from 5 to 7 p.m. and beer will continue until 9. With a Craft Beer Week passport, you get $3 off a 64-ounce growler fill and meet Chef Gautier OTA friday september 24th and enjoy some special tastes on tap and from the kitchen this is all brought to you courtesy of our friends and sponsors the whole foods market this will be down at their bowery um location so, i
1: think that's great that uh jacques from palo santo uh, would uh, do that event he's a great fantastic chef. yeah there's another event we want to announce that's on september right. 25th the heritage radio network invites you to celebrate our important partners Saturday, September 25th, 2010, 7 p.m. to midnight, which actually looks cool on the invitation. It's all caps. RSVP by September <laughs> 17th, $100 a person. Check or credit card to...
0: All you can eat or drink. Yeah,
1: all you can eat. I mean, basically, you can find out information on the Heritage Foods website or just call us. But it's all you can eat, all you can drink. You're right. and I know Katie's excited about that. Yeah. Acclaimed chef Gabe McMacken of Roberta's will be working with the farmers and producers to serve the following... Uh, Beef from our sponsors and friends, Hearst Ranch. Also from Alec Bradford, who was on the show. Great um, speaker from Leaping Waters Farm in Virginia. Prosciutto from S. Wallace Edwards & Sons. Of course, the famous Sam Edwards, who makes this great prosciutto. Real visionary to risk so much, you know, on making an American prosciutto and thinking that Americans would like it.
0: And it is every bit as good as an Italian prosciutto, I'm here to tell you.
1: Poultry from Good Shepherd Turkey Ranch. I mean, almost... Co, you know, with us, introduced the word heritage into the, you know the meat world. It was all you know on their shoulders on the farm. Cured hams from Purdy and Sons, upstate New York. Dan's been on the show. Yay! Sausages from the anchor of heritage foods, Paradise Locker Meats. Yep. Hot Italian sausages, so good. And then one of our farmers is coming, Craig Good, and he raises Duroc pork. Um, and then finally, smoked fish from Acme Smoked Fish. God it's bless Also, him. Maker's Mark. Six Point Dales, uh Nat, Brooklyn's and Jack own Jack are going to be DJing, so it's a fun, uh, fun event. Just it's going
0: to be a rocking event. It's RSVPs
1: not just fun. to seven one eight three eight nine zero nine eight five. Well, we got a great show, huh, Katie?
0: Uh, yeah. I mean, I it's taken me a long time to line this up, and I'm really excited to um, be introducing Bill Bullard, who will be coming on at about 1210. Um, Bill is the um, the leading light behind an organization called RCAF, which is Ranchers and Cattlemen's Action Legal Fund. Um, and they are an organization, which he will tell you more about, but they, they represent rural America, basically, and they have a lot to say about the cattle industry and about... Um, Uh, The meat industry in general, which um, may be quite an eye-opener for some of you. Anybody who's interested in American agriculture uh, should be tuning into this segment with Bill Bullard because um, there's going to be some information here that I have no doubt will raise a few eyebrows. I think Mm it's going to be um, a fascinating couple of segments. He's a
1: big part about... Um, a lot of their rules that they're proposing is to keep farmers farmers. That's right. To not shut them out of the process of agriculture, which is essentially which is, what seems to have happened in the meat industry.
0: Well, that's what's happening in, in really in all of agriculture. So to God. to join us um, in commenting on that is the wonderful Peter Kaminsky. God, what uh, a famous guy he is. Who is a noted author, journalist, and uh, commentator on the food scene and the food industry. <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> um, we really are excited to have Peter come in and join us on this show because he's so very knowledgeable about um, the food industry in general. And, and I like um, the way he kind of And is the author of his own book on, on the hog industry. So, um, and he's written
1: many books. And the book coming out is Culinary Intelligence.
0: And we'll be talking about that after our segment with our calf
1: What I like about Peter... Peter's work is, you know, he has the Brian Savarin kind of charmy, witty he side does. of describing things. But <clears throat> then he also kind of like Michael Pollan ventures into the scientific and, you know, he maps out the tongue and tries to find vocabulary words to define taste. So, you know, I think he does a lot for the, you know, basic history of, of food as well. So and plus he always fished for years and. Would catch fish and write articles for the times. Well,
0: Peter is an important <clears throat> excuse me, an important voice in the food world, and um, everybody should get to know him if they're not familiar with him already. So, um, let's
1: uh, well, let's see, let's we have three minutes to kill. We should say, Jack, oh,
0: you have a concert tonight. Oh, yeah, father, my
1: father is, uh, you know, an interesting man, Juan Carlos Martins. Uh, Jack, Martins. I'm sure you'll have no trouble typing João. It's J-O-A-O, Martins. Um, Anyway, he is performing um, with an orchestra at Avery Fisher Hall tonight at 6, and that's kind of cool because he um, has given... Um, basically scholarships to about 45 underprivileged Brazilian children, and he teaches them classical music. And so he's actually here with an orchestra of about 80 people. 40 of them are the children, and 40 are professional.
0: And you should mention that your father at one time enjoyed the reputation as one of the premier interpreters of Bach uh, in the world. I mean, You know, definitely somebody who rivaled Glenn Gould in terms of reputation at a certain point. Uh, His career, unfortunately, cut short as a solo concert pianist by injuries to his hand. Isn't that so
1: cruel? It's so cruel. It would be like Peter Kaminsky losing his tongue or something like that. It would be the worst.
0: (laughs) But the fact is is that he reinvented himself and created this wonderful orchestra that, that brings classical music to kids who otherwise would probably have no exposure to it whatsoever. And what's more, kids who would never be coming to New York City to be performing at Avery Fisher hall yeah so i it's a it's a real dream come true i'm sure for a lot of kids and the orchestra i can tell you from experience i heard this group last year they are absolutely outstanding uh and the the program is always an interesting and unusual one uh not necessarily something that americans hear all that often so
1: yeah well um we will come back in a second with uh our friends from uh from
0: rcaf and and peter kaminsky will be joining us in the studio Welcome back. This is the main course on Heritage Radio Network. We're broadcasting live from the back of Roberta's in Bushwick, 261 Moore Street. Um, my, I am your host, Katie Kiefer, with my partner in crime, Patrick Martins. Um, in the studio, I have a noted author and journalist, Peter Kaminsky, along with Melinda Kaminsky. And um, on the phone, we are totally pleased and enthusiastic about having uh, the head of RCAF uh, USA, uh, Bill Bullard. Bill, can you hear me?
2: I sure can. Good morning.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really Thanks, excited to have you on the show. So, um, My pleasure. Uh, basically, we sort of build this show, uh, at least amongst ourselves, as, as kind of, you know, how do we keep uh, rural America still a viable um, commodity, for lack of a better word. And I know that RCAF, um, Ranchers and Cattlemen's Action Legal Fund, right? Yes. So, can you tell us a little bit about RCAF and what you, who you guys represent, and why, why you, why you bother?
1: And what, I, and what I'm, I want to just say is, this is all going to build these first few questions to what I think the greatest contribution of you guys, just on um, first perusal about learning about you guys, is you guys are interested in keeping ranchers ranchers, keeping farmers, farmers. So we're going to, you know, eventually unfold towards uh, that direction.
2: Yeah, but first we want to give a little
0: background to listeners about what is RCAF, who you represent, and why ranchers need your organization.
2: Okay, RCAF is a national trade association, a nonprofit organization that represents the interests of the farmers and ranchers who raise and sell live cattle in this multi-segmented beef supply chain. In other words, in order to get wholesome beef to the consumer's plate, you first need those to breed and rear the cattle, and that's who we represent, the actual farmers and ranchers who are raising and selling live cattle. But then the cattle, in order to be converted to a consumable beef product, needs to be slaughtered and processed by the manufacturing sector of our industry. We don't represent that sector. Uh, And unfortunately, for decades, the entire industry, including the farmers and ranchers and and manufacturers, were all represented by the manufacturers with the belief that what was good for the manufacturers was also good for the farmers and ranchers. Well, a decade ago, conditions had become so bad that a group of serious farmers and ranchers got together and said that the independent cattle producer, the farmers and ranchers that raise and sell cattle need a, an effective and distinct national voice in order to represent their interests because their industry was shrinking away at a phenomenal rate. And that's why cap was incepted about a decade ago, and you're absolutely right. Our mission is to ensure that the economic environment is conducive to allowing independent farmers and ranchers to continue the business of raising the highest quality, the safest uh, beef in in the world, bar none. It's and almost it the, to start uh, with the, farmers.
1: the meat equivalent of a player's union in sports. You know, these are the people doing the actual stuff at the beginning, you know, doing the most important aspect of it, and they don't seem to have a voice. Now, do the people, the big, big ranchers that sell to these massive packing houses, do they also believe in your organization, or do they ch- choose to side with the packers?
2: Well, there's a, a, a distinction between those who are involved as independent producers versus those who are tied directly to the packers, either through formal contracts uh, or because the packer owned the cattle that they're feeding and uh, they're essentially custom feeding for the packers. Our organization represents the entire segment of the live cattle supply chain, if we've if we view our industry and visualize a pyramid, that's the US cattle industry. At the base of the pyramid, you have 753,000 independent farmers and ranchers scattered in every state of the union. Uh this is a, an industry this live cattle industry generates 50 billion dollars a year. So it's vitally important to the economic well-being of rural communities all across America. So at the base of the pyramid, you've got 753,000 independent producers. And as you move up to the top of the pyramid, you move into the feeding sector of our industry. That's where animals that have reached the age of between 9 months and 12 months are brought into the feedlots where they are fed a high-grain ration, a high-energy ration, in order to essentially fatten the animals up and prepare them for slaughter. We have 753,000 cattle producers, but at the peak in this feedlot sector, it has become so concentrated that we now only have about eighty five thousand feedlots and of those there's only about twenty one hundred that feed eighty five percent of all the animals fed in the united states that means eighty thousand of those are small farmer feeders that are farmers and ranchers themselves in this industry but that segment of our feedlot sector has been shrinking at an alarming rate we've lost thirty thousand just in the last fourteen years so then you get at the very peak of the pyramid where the final feedlots market their animals to the meat packers, the slaughterers. And in our industry, that segment of our industry has become one of the most highly concentrated sectors in the US economy. We now have four meat packers that slaughter approximately eighty five percent of all the fed cattle. Wow. And so that, that occurs at the peak of this pyramid. And those
0: those are Cargill, Tyson? National, uh, what is it, National Meat Packers?
2: Uh, Yes, it's, uh, Tyson's the largest, then you have Cargill, then you have a Brazilian firm called JBS,
0: JBS, and then you have
2: National Beef Packing Company. And National Beef Packing Company is among the largest four, but it is dwarfed by the top three.
0: Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And to backtrack just a little bit, Bill, at the beginning of your, of your um, interview here, you were saying that over the last 10 years, uh, things have changed in the industry, and that is why RCAF uh, came into being. What were those changes that, um, that catalyzed uh, the growth of this organization? Was what it the saw, this cons- consolidation or?
2: It was the result of the increased concentration and consolidation. Uh, That really peaked at about 1995. Mm -hmm. And then in 1996, the United States cattle industry started liquidating the size of the cattle herd. And we've now been in an unprecedented 14-year liquidation of the cattle herd. We've had severe depressed prices. And since 1996, we have been losing the number of U.S. cattle farmers and ranchers at the rate of over 11,000 per year. Wow. And putting that in perspective, we're losing more ranchers from the U.S. cattle industry than there are in the entire states of Arizona, Idaho, Montana, North Dakota, and Wyoming, all states to be consider, are considered to be significant cattle-producing states. So our industry is contracting. It's shrinking at an alarming rate, and we're soon uh, to follow the same path that we've already witnessed in the U.S. poultry production system, in the U.S., production system. Mm -hmm. In those two industries, the meat packers have so dominated the industry that they virtually control uh, the product from birth to plate. They are industrialized models, and the cattle industry is really the last frontier. It's the largest segment of American agriculture, a $50 billion industry, viable in every state of the union, vitally important to our rural economy, and it's the last frontier to the meat packers. It's the last significant livestock industry that is not totally controlled by the meat packers themselves. No one and can And that's control why our was born.
1: <laughs> the cow. It will never be tamed.
0: Um, so Bill, let's let's talk for a second about um, why why should consumers care? whether or not the industry consolidates if it means cheaper meat. Like yeah. what's
1: we hear that argument all the time, you know, but what, it's cheaper, it's cheaper. That's the most you know, aside important. Aside from the
0: impact on, you know, on rural communities, okay, um, could, how can consumers sort of let their voice be heard and, and what should they be thinking about when they buy meat and if this is the case, if this consolidation continues to, uh, to
2: grow? Well, that's the precise argument the meat packers have made successfully mm-hmm. for decades, and why the U.S. Department of Justice has turned a blind eye towards the enforcement of our antitrust laws. Uh-huh. Because they believed that efficiency argument, that where the packers claimed they were achieving an economy of scale and creating efficiencies in the marketplace that were providing lower cost beef to consumers. We demonstrated to the Department of Justice that that claim is totally false. Though it is true that at one point, over the past three decades, the meat packers did achieve a level of economy of scale and there were efficiencies. But what we have seen is over time, since 1980, the spread between the price that the farmer and rancher received for cattle versus the price that consumers are paying at the retail store that spread has been increasing and is becoming wider and wider over time. No what that down. indicates.
0: And yeah. this is one of the things that is forcing ranchers out of the business, correct? Or
1: the independent ones, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: And so what that what that data show is that the spread between the farm gate price and the consumer price continues to increase. Therefore, we are not imputing efficiencies into the system. In fact, we have far achieved any level of economy of scale. We have far achieved any efficiencies to consumers. Now we've entered into the era of the market dominance and the exercise of abusive market power, which, is, mm-hmm. which allows the packers to pay cattle prices below what a competitive market would establish and to charge prices to beef for consumers above what a competitive market would dictate. So that we demonstrated that to the U.S. Department of Justice in 2008, and as a result of that, they, f- for the first time in history, actually blocked a mega-merger in the U.S. beef packing industry. They blocked the Brazilian firm's acquisition of the fourth-largest beef, beef packer, national beef packing company. We believe that was the start of a clear recognition by consumers and by the public and by the government that we have for too long ignored and neglected the enforcement of our antitrust laws and now both producers and consumers are being exploited in the marketplace by the dominant meat packers.
1: It's so interesting you say that because we've always maintained on this show that you know while the sustainable food world is always lamenting at the high cost of their foods, they're not looking that the fast foods, that the industrial foods have become very expensive, in and of themselves, you know, and the, it doesn't trickle down. Like I always love using the McDonald's value meal um, is like eight bucks. It's like eight forty or something at certain places. That's not that cheap. You know, you can get sustainable meals for much less. So it seems like the greed has seeped into the system to, uh, you know, artificially inflate the prices of, of those foods. The
2: uh, other no th- question about it. The other and, thing and there's, Okay, sorry, excuse, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead I'm go ahead. sorry. Well, I was going to say, uh, um, another measure of this, because there's really two types of products that are produced from live cattle. Uh, two general products. One is the the raw product, the steaks, the roast, the ground beef that you purchase at the retail counter, and the other is the value-added products. But if we look at the standard form of the product, the roast, the steaks, the ground beef, in 1980, for every dollar a consumer spent on beef, 63 cents of that went back to the cattle farmer and rancher. That was in 1980. 30 years later, in 2009, when we're looking at those same standard Standard animal cut up in a standard way, sold in standard form to the consumer, the c- cattle farmer and rancher only receive 43 cents. That means the meat packers and the retailers are capturing the lion's share of the basic product that is being produced. And then, in addition to that, as you said, we have value added products that are being uh, sold through some of the fast food restaurant chains, and there, there that disparity grows even larger.
0: Bill, what about the environmental costs, which are not calculated uh, in the cost of raising livestock, which I suspect uh, also, I mean, it seems like the the consolidation of the meat industry kind of gives uh, the big packers a pass. On the environmental costs of, say, confined area feeding operations, um, and of course, ranchers don't really have a lot to do with that. But what what is the stance of the ranching community on that part of the of the of cattle husbandry? And for well, that we... matter,
1: I would also add to that question: third-party humane certification. I mean, you know, all those things. Like, what's their stance on all the things that the big companies do so badly, and that the sustainable food world clamors to change?
2: Well, oh, that's right. And if you look at the, the independent the family farmer and rancher, they have been uh, excellent. Husbandry or practices of, of animal husbandry practices that are humane. They have cared for the land, air, and the water. Uh, they have maintained, they are in fact environmentalists and conservationists. And now we're moving into this industrialized model, and we need only look at the hog industry. The hog industry just a short 30 years ago had about 667,000 independent producers scattered all across the United States. Hogs were raised in virtually every state, and it was a significant economic engine for rural communities. But since 1980, the hog industry has become so concentrated and consolidated that the meat packers have forced out 90% of the producers. Today we have about 67,000 hog producers left. In 30 years, we wiped out 90% of the producers, and there has been a geographic concentration of the hog industry. Yes. The meat packers decided to locate in Minnesota, Iowa, and in North Carolina. They chose the states where the environmental standards were the more, most relaxed and where they could obtain labor at a cheaper cost. Wow. So the meat packers moved their processing facilities to Minnesota, Iowa, and North Carolina, and, and they drew the production towards those meatpacking facilities. So now you have three states producing hogs that produce 56% of all the gross income in hogs for the entire United States. And, and what we've seen is under the industrialized model, we have environmental degradation. We have uh, spillage from containment uh, um, ponds that are creating fish kills. We have significant environmental concerns raised because of the highly concentrated nature of these corporate industrialized production models. We don't believe they're sustainable, but they are currently in existence in the hog industry and in the poultry industry. We're trying to prevent the cattle industry from going the same direction and it's happening very quickly.
1: No one will defeat the cow. Don't worry, Bill. You're gonna win. <laughs> but um we are going to uh come back and um in a, you're gonna stay with us stay one with more us. segment, we hope. And uh we're going to talk about in this next segment, you know, really hitting home on actual some of the laws that your you guys are going Yeah, I with. want to get
0: into the gypsum rules that you guys are fighting for that the meatpackers are fighting against. We're also uh, going
1: to talk about importation which um, yeah. uh, is, and and also I think it'd be interesting if Peter might be able to help us understand the the global situation cuz you know, he's been spent a lot of time uh, thinking and talking and writing about meat um, in in different countries. But I wanted to ask you right before we go to break, do you know uh, Dale Lasseter and Will Harris?
2: I do not recognize those names. Okay,
1: yeah, those are independent meat guys that we work with. Dale Lasseter's father was a conservationist, I think, in the state of Wyoming, and he did a great job. And he also believed in letting natural predators exist on his land. Even though it might kill some of his cattle, he thought that it kind of, you know, uh, survival of the fittest. And then, of course, Will Harris, who's a sponsor at White Oak Pastures, is an independent beef rancher. And he has a slaughterhouse on his own farm down in Atlanta. So the cows yeah. never leave their home. Well, I'd like to talk
0: more about vertical integration and how yeah. the, 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 the pros and cons. But let's but take we'll a be short back. break. And We're we'll sponsored be right
1: back. by Whole Foods. We want to thank them. And uh, yeah, we'll be right back.
0: main course on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, with Patrick Martins. Hello. Uh, we have Peter Kaminsky in the studio, and on the phone we have Bill. We Bullard. We have Melinda
1: Kaminsky and too. Melinda
0: Kaminsky, and on the phone we have Bill Bullard from RCAF USA, which is a ranchers and cattlemen's action um, legal fund.
1: Great first segment. I learned a lot. Which a helps? Lot of great stuff. Which
0: helps ranchers uh, basically keep rural America alive. Uh, they're fighting hard for. Um, American values American values maintaining American ranchers uh, you know trying to stop the consolidation mm-hmm. and the antitrust uh, and maintain the antitrust laws of the uh, of the American agricultural they're fighting uh, for a fair
1: food supply which coincidentally is also good and clean as yeah. so foods want you. so
0: um so Bill let's get down to some nitty-gritty because there's been a lot of hullabaloo and it even made the New York Times which you know I read those uh, those cattle trade papers all the time so um, you know the fight about the gypsy rules, which is the grain inspection and stockyards...
2: Packers and Stockyards. Thank you,
0: Packers and Stockyards Administration. Um, there are new rules that are being proposed, which the um, which the National Cattlemen's Beef Organization, a beef association, and the American Meat Institute seem to be very much diametrically opposed to. Um, and I'm going to read a couple of the things that I read off of the NCBA website, um, and I'd love to get your um, your response to that. Um, one of the things that uh, that the NCBA puts on their website about the proposed GYPSA rule is that it bans. Pack- packer-to-packer sales of livestock. And this applies to individual packers and any affiliates or subsidiaries they might own. First of all, if a packer selling to another packer has resulted in competitive injury to the marketplace, then GYPSA should penalize violators and enforce existing regulations of the Packers and Stockyards Act. Secondly, this will have severe unintended consequences, especially to smaller packers and dealers. This seems to be the crux of your of your whole issue, which is that, you know, that speaks to the consolidation of the industry. Can you comment on on this banning of the packer-to-packer sale and explain why it's important important to make sure that they do ban packer-to-packer sales?
2: Yes, and we need to say as well that the National Cattlemen's Beef Association has meat packers seated on its governing board. So the American Meat Institute that represents the largest packers and the packers themselves and the NCBA are expected to speak with one voice because they're all representing the same segment of the industry it's
1: so
3: wrong. But we,
2: need, we need to look at why uh... this rule was drafted and in the nineteen twenties we had a situation where the the meat packers at that time were vertically integrating the industry and consolidating the industry and and as a result we had producers receiving below the cost of production prices and producers were being forced out of the industry So Congress passed the Packers and Stockyards Act, which was intended to provide the the disaggregated independent cattle producers protections against the unfair trade practices of the meat packers. Now we already had antitrust laws, like the Sherman Antitrust Act, that was to prevent and protect, or prevent monopolies, so as to protect competition. So, we had general antitrust laws, but Congress recognized a dire need to have a law that specifically protected the uh, many, many hundreds of thousands of producers against a handful of meat packers. So, they passed the Packers and Stockyards Act. The Packers and Stockyards Act prohibited packers from engaging in any unfair, unjustly discriminatory, or deceptive practices that would harm an individual producer. And so from 1920s, we went through the uh, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, and the meat packers were acted pretty much in compliance with the act. But during the 80s and 90s, when the meat packers started to consolidate and concentrate the, all the livestock industries, they had convinced the U.S. Department of Agriculture not to properly enforce the Packers and Stockyards Act, and they convinced the Justice Department that they were creating these efficiencies and so that antitrust laws should not be enforced. So we went through a period of thirty or forty years where these were neglected. But in the two thousand and eight Farm Bill discussions, when the Farm Bill was being generated, the problems associated with the hog producers and poultry producers who are have become contract growers for the Packers, those problems had become so egregious that Congress had to act. So there was a renewed look at this ninety year old Packers and Stockyards Act and a recognition that It hasn't been properly enforced. So Congress instructed, mandated USDA to write rules to finally begin enforcing the provisions within that act. And that's what GIPSA did, the Grain Inspection Packers and Stockyards Act, for the first time in 90 years, proposed a rule on June 22nd of 2010, that would provide clarity as to how USDA was going to administer and enforce this nearly 90-year-old act that was specifically intended to protect the independent farmers and ranchers and the meat packers and all of their trade associations, including the American Meat Institute and the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, have come unglued because this rule <laughs> derails their effort. To capture control over the live cattle segment of the beef supply chain, just as the packers have already fully captured control over the hog supply chain and the poultry supply chain. Do you, so you ever that's worry that it brings us where we're at?
1: Do you ever right. worry that you're being followed? <laughs> <laughs> do 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 they react negatively to you? I mean, do they are they intimidated? I mean, how do they how seriously do they take the voice that you have? I mean. Uh, because, I mean, I ask that because Heritage Foods, which is the tiniest of possible companies, people get, I mean, articles have come out in these meat papers coming out against our elitist meats and stuff like that. So, you know, I wonder, you must be a real thorn in their side, no?
2: Well, certainly we are. Um, we are the organization that has elevated this issue to the forefront, that has caused Congress to begin taking action. Uh, right. We're successful because we built coalitions with many other like-minded organizations, and we're all working together for the same goal, and that is to preserve the environment so we continue to have family farmers and ranchers that are independent business people supporting their rural communities. And this is absolutely contrary to the interests of the Packers that are trying to capture control over the industry. We are in a fierce battle today. And have been for the last decade against these industrialized forces.
0: Well, you had a summit meeting at Fort Collins, Colorado, in August, uh, where over 2,000 ranchers uh, paid out of their own pocket to come uh, join in the protest against um, the attempted manipulation of the of the NCBA and the AMI to squelch these new Gypsy rules. Can you tell us a little bit about what that what that was all about? 'cause that actually well, made the papers I mean, and I'm gonna read you a little bit from a new york Times uh editorial that ran recently um that sort of addresses not just that but the whole sort of all of these rules that are changing and and what's going to be happening in the in the next uh few years
1: okay are you' gonna read Do you wanna read that first or oh sorry oh yeah
0: well okay, I'll read th- I'm sorry she <laughs> sorry. has a short
1: term memory <laughs> yeah, <problem>. yeah, yeah yeah. <laughs>
0: It's the incipient Alzheimer's going on. Um, I'm going to just read from this uh, Times editorial that ran on September 9th um, and that doesn't really address the Fort Collins Summit, but addresses this issue, and and this and it, and it sort of goes like this. Um, this uh, As a result, livestock is increasingly traded from packer to packer, not farm to packer, giving packers more control of the total market in the pasture, in the barns, in the feedlots, and on the killing floor. Mm. This, in turn, makes price collusion and manipulation much too easy. Mr. Vilsack's rules, which I'm assuming are the gypsum rules you're trying to have enforced, yes. aim to address this, making it illegal for packers to sell livestock to other packers. By themselves, these changes will only modestly reduce the concentration in the industry today. Packers argue that a tightly integrated system allows or sorry results in high quality meat that's so
4: BS it's which the exact i don't buy at opposite. all i mean
0: in fact the current system guarantees only a steady flow of animals at the lowest possible prices through the nation's slaughterhouses while doing little to address the issues of industrial production such as overuse of antibiotics groundwater pollution and toxic manure waste huh. we hope that mr vilsack will be able to make his modest rule changes stick but we also think it's time for a larger initiative in preparation for the next farm bill which could reach Congress in 2012 which would be to prevent packers from owning animals before they're ready for slaughter restore open markets and let small farmers back into the game i wanted to ask you to comment a little bit about the next farm bill and what you would like to see in that farm bill
2: okay uh, and, and this allows me to address your initial questions on the packer to backer sales yeah. what the new gypsa rule does is number one, it imparts accountability on the part of the Packers. And it does this by saying that a Packer's action of uh, deception or unjust discrimination, if they direct that at an individual, that's as unlawful as if they um, imparted that on the entire industry. That's the issue of whether or not a producer would first have to show that a Packer's deceptive practice not only hurt him or herself, but also hurt the entire industry. The Packers want the standard to be you have to show harm to the entire industry, but the rule makes it clear that the Packers cannot exact harm on an individual, and that's why the Packers are so uh, uh, objectionable to this. The second thing the rule does is it requires the Packers to maintain the documentation necessary for USDA to determine if the Packers are in fact in compliance with the Packers and Stockyards Act. For decades, they've never had to provide the documents to justify why they're paying different prices for similar quality cattle sold at similar volumes. The third thing this rule does is it imparts transparency in the marketplace to facilitate competition. Mm-hmm. Requires packers to actually show what their contracts contain. What, in other words, it allows a producer to look at the various forms of contracts the packers are offering. And a producer can determine which of the four packers are seeking the type and quality of cattle that the producer may have to sell. As a result, the producer can make an informed choice as to which packer he or she may want to negotiate with for a price. Hmm. And then the the last thing the rule does is it addresses the known anti-competitive practices that are eroding competition in the marketplace. And that is the packer-to-packer sales in order to maintain competition for the farmers and ranchers there must be open and robust competition when a rancher sells cattle to the packer but the packers have found an alternative means of, t- of acquiring cattle rather than buying from the cattle producer they want to buy from each other thus eliminating competition for cattle so if tyson the world's largest packer for example needs 5,000 head of cattle at the end of a week to finish up their slaughter capacity, they don't want to go out in the cash market and bid for 5,000 cattle from producers because that will raise the price of all the cattle they have to purchase. So they'll just call another packer and say, why don't you just sell me cattle this week and next week I'll sell you cattle back. If you run short that way, we are not causing the competitive marketplace to respond to the economic laws of supply but and demand. Why
1: does that matter if they control the commodity market anyway? If they, come, if they control the pricing of the market, I mean, do, or do they have control over what the USDA dictates as the commodity price on any given day?
2: Well, here's where they have the control. Um, the first thing the meat packers do is they create a new economic risk for farmers and ranchers. That new risk is called market access risk. That's the risk that a farmer Uh or rancher will not have timely access to the market. So the meat packers, Uh when they consolidated the industry, there's only four of them controlling 85% of the market. They're the gatekeepers. They decide who does and who does not have timely access to the market. So they create that new economic risk. The second step is they solve the problem. They solve the problem of market access risk by guaranteeing to producers timely access to the marketplace, provided the consumers are willing to sign a forward contract. And as a result, producers leave the competitive cash market, tie into these contracts in order to guarantee timely access to the market. Mm-hmm. So the third step is as more and more producers leave the competitive cash market, the meat packers continue to use the competitive cash market as the price discovery market. Whatever price is discovered in the cash market is the price that becomes the base price for all of these forward contracts and marketing agreements. The fourth step is as that cash market becomes thinner and thinner, less volume, less buyers, less sellers, it drops the price of cattle in the cash market. And the packers influence that drop in price because they can just stay out of the cash market, reduce the demand for cattle, drive the price lower... And by doing so, they benefit because it, it becomes the base price for all the cattle. All the cattle. That's that is we're... the
1: interesting. Uh, Jack, you should tag that as the answer to how the commodity price is. I've always wondered if there was it's some determined. secret board somewhere yeah. that just made that decision that was packed by Smithfield and this and that. But now I understand. That is the definitive answer on how uh, the big guys control pricing and why a guy who's like, I'm going to do different, has trouble even selling three cats.
0: I also wanted to ask you, Bill. What what is the impact of of for instance the fact that JBS and Swift, you know, JBS Swift now have access to um, cheap meat from from South America, and how and for just for an example, how much. Uh, impact does being able to buy cattle from overseas and bringing it into the United States, what impact does that have on cattle prices in the open market? Yeah,
1: and then we wanted to bring that to Peter uh, about importation and, and, and looking towards the end of this interview with the global picture and how it is in different countries, so... How would you answer that question from Katie?
2: Well, that's a huge issue, and, and that <laughs> demonstrates why we cannot continue to treat cattle and, uh, and beef as if they were some storable industrial good uh, in trade agreements. We have an, an industry that we are producing an animal with the longest biological cycle of any animal. That's right. It takes us 15 to 18 months to bring an animal from birth to, till it's processed. As a result, we are unable to respond as an industry to changes in, in price and, and demand. And so the meat packers have used this inherent characteristic in our industry to leverage down cattle prices, and they use imports to do it. And we saw firsthand in the early 2000s how significant this leverage was because we were importing a relatively small volume of cattle from Canada. One and a half million head of live cattle were being imported in, into the United States from Canada. And in two, prior to 2003, our prices in the U.S. were severely depressed. But after 2003, an anomaly occurred. Canada discovered mad cow disease, bovine spongiform encephalopathy in a native animal, and the United States closed the border because we prohibited any imports from countries that, where this disease was known to occur. So the border closed, and that closed the, the volume of live cattle coming into the United States. That only represented about 4% of the U.S. slaughter. We slaughtered about 34 million head of cattle. We were importing about 1.5 million from Canada. Huh. Within five months, we saw the largest jump in the cattle prices in the history of our industry. Huh. Fed cattle prices jumped $26 a hundredweight from May through October in 2003. What happened was, was the, the cattle or the meat packers were using these imported cattle in order to satisfy the end-of-the-week demand for live cattle, thus lowering the price of all domestic cattle. And when those imports were shut off a relatively small volume, the control the packers had over the industry literally slipped through their fingers, and the competitive forces in our markets were just unleashed. And we saw competitive prices for cattle for the first time in many, many years.
4: Wow, and so,
2: and the U.S. International Trade Commission has developed a rule of thumb on how inelastic our cattle supplies are to changes in supplies. And what they found was a 1% increase in fed cattle supply numbers would expect to decrease domestic cattle prices. Prices by 2%. That's a significant uh, farm elasticity uh, equation that affects our industry, and the packers have been able to leverage these imported animals in order to satisfy demand even at very small volumes, but it's had a huge negative impact on U.S. cattle producers.
1: That's unbelievable. I mean, how do, if anyone has anything to comment on that, but how does it work in other countries? I mean, is is France and England and, and Argentina? Well, you and, talk
0: about Argentina, the other... Because yeah. Yeah, they are really the other... I'd say probably JBS Swift has the other biggest uh, cattle herd and vertic- vertically integrated operations in the world. Would not would you agree well, with and that, Peter, Bill? Peter, do you know...
1: Uh, I mean, yeah, do you, JBS, have you followed the that? world?
2: Sorry, Bill. JBS is the world's largest beef packer. Yeah. Uh, they have operations in South America, in Italy, in Australia, in the United States. And what we're finding is that the producers in all of these countries are being exploited just as producers in the United States are. Uh, we, we've got a affiliated organization, the Australian Beef Association. Australia is a major beef exporter. Definitely. But the producers are suffering from severely depressed prices and they're seeing the same level of consolidation and vertical integration by the same packers in their country as we are here. So this is a global problem, and the meat packers have been able to go to the World Trade Organization and develop policies that are beneficial to to their purposes. And they've actually convinced the United States to begin to relax our import standards in order to facilitate more imports into the United States, And this began as recently as 94 after the Uruguay round of the GATT agreement. And what we did after 94 was, number one, we began to systematically reduce our import safety standards. We no longer require foreign countries to maintain uh, food safety inspection standards that are at least equal to the United States. Throughout history, they had to be at least equal to the United States. That's no longer true. Now they only need to be equivalent. In addition, we used to have monthly inspection of foreign beef packing plants before they could export to the United States. We relax that in accordance with the meat packers' efforts at the World Trade Organization. Now we only do periodic inspections.
0: And yet, we other use- countries are coming in and inspecting our plants and and banning our beef right, left, and center. I see that all the time. The Koreans, the Japanese, the Russians. I mean, you know, our export business is is frequently impacted by. Excuse me for using that as a verb. Frequently. Uh- <laughs> Frequently suffer from um, from having our plants being deemed as you know insufficiently uh, safe for their food for their food safety standards.
2: The, the United States has been extremely naive. We have unilaterally, systematically relaxed our import standards to facilitate more imports, and other countries have not reciprocated. That's right, and that's the problem. We're practicing what we what the the leadership views to be a free trade model but no other country is, and they're eating our lunch. And we have got to change. We've got to develop a national trade strategy that recognizes national goals, both for food security and food safety, and our policy has to reflect that. But it doesn't. Our policy only reflects an effort to facilitate even more imports into this country, and as a result, we're seeing more food recalls, more contaminated meat products coming into this country, it is an unsustainable uh, strategy that we currently are following.
0: So, Bill, let's let's backtrack for just a second and talk for a minute about the farm bill, which um, which you would like to see have happen, assuming that Congress gets to it in 2012, and then and then uh, we'll probably yeah. And have then to say I want to ask that,
1: with that phone bill, like, what is your primary means of achieving victories? I mean, is it done over? Uh, in steakhouses and in, in the back rooms is it done at uh, farmer meetings you know with 20 30 people at a time i mean how do you uh hit the pavement uh to unite these ideas to form these manifestos and and, and, and law to proposals? alert
0: consumers to what's at stake yeah
1: how do you do it what is the uh, nitty-gritty of, of how it actually gets communicated and things get
2: done with you Well, it's all of the above, but if we look at the 2012 Farm Bill, in the 2008 Farm Bill, for the first time in history, we successfully included a livestock title, and in that livestock title, we clarified how country of origin labeling was going to be administered and implemented, and that provides the consumers with information as to what country the food product they're purchasing was actually produced in. And in the 2008 Farm Bill Livestock title, we included this mandate to USDA to write this GYPSA rule. So we made significant headway. Now the next step is we now must address the heart of the problem. The heart of the problem is the meat packers are using what we call captive supplies. They're using cattle that are committed to them uh, through forward contracts and formula contracts, but a price has not been established and they're using those captive supply cattle that are committed to them without having uh, been a part of a competitive bidding process, and they're using those to leverage down the aggregate prices of cattle. We've got to end that practice. That's what that article talked about that you read earlier, Mm -hmm. was the fact that the meatpackers were using captive-supplies to leverage down prices paid to farmers and ranchers and it was forcing a mass exodus of producers out of our industry. We are, in fact, urging. Uh, in fact, we're circulating a joint letter amongst various, about a hundred groups. So they include faith-based groups, they include uh, sustainable agricultural groups, family farm groups, other conventional farm organizations, and cattle associations. And we'll be sending a joint letter to USDA urging them to take the next step, to write a rules a rule to prohibit the packers from engaging in the anti-competitive practice of using captive supplies to leverage down cattle prices and we're going to continue fighting for that and if necessary if we cannot get it done through the administrative rulemaking process then we will need congress to write a statute that will accomplish that and that's what we're looking at as the the heart or the most important element of the upcoming farm bill And to achieve that, we are working with this broad-based coalition. We're trying to reach out to consumers. We're trying to get consumers and producers to join the organizations that are fighting aggressively for these reforms. And that's been a a very difficult proposition, to get consumers and producers to join with their farmers and ranchers in order to make the fundamental changes necessary to restore vitality to rural America. But that's what we're trying to do through meetings, uh, producer meetings. That's one of the purposes that we viewed this Fort Collins event. That was unprecedented. For the first time in history, the U.S. Department of Justice and USDA joined together to explore what's happening uh, in the livestock industry with respect to the loss of competition. So having 2,000 producers there and having the... um, New York Times and others recognize that as being significant is a step in the right direction in order to help us accomplish uh, the needed reforms that we need to restore competition to U.S. livestock producers and to rural America.
1: Oh, wow. I mean, you're very good. I can tell you understand the issue because of how clearly you distill it. And, um, you know, if if I've learned one thing during this uh, hour with you is that they might have gotten the chicken. They might, might have gotten, gotten the pig. pig, but they will not, <laughs> and I repeat, not get the cow as long as our calf and Bill, heritage foods and HRN. Let's direct is people
0: to your website so that they can stay tuned into this issue. It's it's you want to go ahead and give your URL and because you do have like a lot, of, you guys, I get a lot of material from you now.
2: <laughs> yes, our um, website is www.r-calf.com. c a l f. USA.com. That's R C A L F USA.com.
1: Well, we do hope you come back because um, we we talk a lot about meat and agriculture on this show, and and if the issue's right, we'd love to uh, have you call in and give your in two fact, cents.
0: You know, I, I I mean, since your your uh, press contact Shay sends me everything that comes out of our calf, I'm always reading the material. I see what's going on. I'm always interested to hear uh, what your position is on various things. And as the next you know twelve to twenty four months unfold, and agricultural policy becomes more and more uh, to the Forefront which I think it really is I think people I think the government is finally Kind of waking up to what's going on I think That Secretary Vilsack is a much More engaged agricultural secretary Than those we have seen in the past And uh, you know I hope that some of these uh, Changes that you're talking about become Implemented in, in future months and Years so um, let's definitely stay In touch it's been a great pleasure to have you On the show Hold on, we, have we have one, one last one, question One last from question from, Peter. from Peter our, is from our truly celebrity here, Guest as we're
1: about to Peter prove.
0: Kaminsky um, who is the author of a major book on the hog industry. On, Bill. So So, so what's your there.
5: question? Bill? You still with yeah. us, Bill? Um, I was wondering um, how much of an effect, if any, uh, the farmer's market and green market movement and uh, alternative supply chains like Whole Foods or Fairway or, or Wegmans uh, and CSAs uh, have,
2: uh, have had on the cattle industry. Hmm. It's having a huge impact, but on a small scale. Yeah. Uh, what we have seen is a growing awareness for healthy eating from consumers, and the farmers' markets and the buy locally campaigns have all moved to fill that niche. But we have an entire $50 billion industry uh, where these solutions are being applied at very small scale in certain localities and it isn't enough to curb the ongoing exodus of cattle producers. So we've got to continue raising the bar, and if we can restore competition, we will restore the opportunity for profitability for all producers, and in a profitable industry like that, you would see the uh, entrepreneurs and innovative people moving into the industry to continue building these niche markets that are right now growing at a very rapid pace across the United States. So we think our efforts are complementing those of the local, uh, buy locally, uh, niche markets, grass-fed beef, organic beef, and so forth. Um, So it's all a part of the solution
1: It's funny we get so caught up In our own sustainable food world Sometimes we think it's the way of things When in reality it's just a small percentage It's so totally not the way of things The
0: way of things is the 50 billion dollar
1: industry But it's like true everyone's like Oh well what's Heritage going to grow to Heritage Foods USA uh, my company And I'm like we're never going to produce 200,000 pigs in a a week But what we will do is get a lot of press And hopefully you know make a large Clamor considering how
0: Packers and encourage yeah. uh, large producers to modify their practices so that there is uh, some sense of the environmental cost, as well as the, you know, as yeah. well as observing certified humane practices.
1: So, so um, well, thanks so much, Bill. Yeah, Bill we will be back. Absolutely
0: fabulous. And thank we're going very, to uh, talk
1: with uh, Peter and Melinda about culinary intelligence. Well, so, thank Katie. you very
2: much, and thanks to all your your listeners. Yeah, we'll Thank be in you touch. Take we'll care, right Bill. Back.
0: Thanks again. I went across
4: right. the Switzerland where all the yodlers be to try to learn the yodel with the yodel bee. I climbed a big high mountain on a clear and sunny day, and met a yodelin' got up in that little Swiss chalet. Oh, we taught me the yodel.
1: Great segment. Great job, Katie.
0: Thank you, Pat. God, when you
1: actually produce, you there produce great so things. so
0: much more to the whole story, and we'll have Bill Bullard back again and again. Because I'm such a
1: fan of yours, Katie. You are was... like a great writer. You're a great organizer. You're a great people person. You get people to do stuff for you, oh, you know?
0: <laughs> I'm going to cry. No, it is really
1: good. And plus, she used to be a butcher. How yeah, well, cool that's why is I'm that? I'm
0: so interested in the meat industry yeah you know I you saw the animal firsthand yeah but you he know was what?
1: very well informed. he was
0: fabulous and be- i hope we have bill bullard back many times yeah. and i hope he was happy with you know with with the interview Now he
1: talked a lot there's no doubt about it but some people drone on and you say. don't get what they're saying and you yeah, want no, to believe so in them articulate. but you don't know why and he was very good
0: well what I remember from being in the meat industry when I was in the butcher shop is you know people would say where did you get your cattle your beef from and we'd say it's prime meat which was bullshit uh, from Montfort of Colorado we would say with pride <laughs> and come to find out about 20 years later I realized that Montfort of Colorado was the first confined area feeding operation in this country oh brother <laughs> oh my god how embarrassing and of course nobody in 1986 or whatever it was that I worked in the butcher shop nobody was thinking about I mean who knew it, there was just no awareness whatsoever I do want
1: to say one thing stuff. I just found out uh, and my girlfriend's sister Megan left her entire bag in the front of the cab so oh, Mr. Cab Driver if you are listening yeah. and you see a big green army duffel bag please come back to oh, 261 Moore That's Street
0: terrible. well anyway our guest now in studio and who is patiently um, sat with his lovely wife Melinda throughout this entire uh, segment is Peter Kaminsky, the noted journalist and author. Um, and Peter, we're going to be talking about culinary intelligence with you, right?
5: A new book by Knopf, right? I'm an almost new book it's a boring it's gestating it'll be out He's, in about a year you're
0: still you're still writing it.
5: I'm still writing yeah. but you've written a lot i mean if Tell, fifty thousand fifty thousand
0: headlines of, well head, yeah your career
5: and then and then we could uh talk about anything you want uh but basically and this ties in a lot to what uh bill was talking about um oh, three four years ago I was about twenty five pounds overweight couldn't get life insurance, borderline diabetic wow. And I'm a food guy. Uh, I eat and I drink and I cook and I write cookbooks. Yeah. So it's an I occupational f- hazard, as you call it. Exactly. So I I did not want to give that up. I didn't give up uh, enjoying food, but I had to change the way I ate. Uh, and I took off the weight and I've kept it off.
0: I know, you uh, look absolutely beautiful.
5: But uh,
0: Doesn't he? It's Melinda? a girdle. It's a girdle. <laughs> Uh, it was always you, Melinda, Spanx. that was
1: the more attractive Spanx of the couple, now. and now the tides have turned. Now it's Peter that's oh, the please. more
5: attractive. Oh, please! But at any rate, my my guide, uh, as it has been my whole life, is uh, uh, is uh, is pleasure. Uh, I Absolutely. think if you seek oh, out boy, food that, that gives you pleasure, uh, you needn't always go to the default in our food culture, which is sugar, sugar salt, and fat. That's it's, where people go, right? When they want pleasure, sugar, salt and fat.
0: But those are your taste bud receptors are primarily those th- it's you know, it's sugar, salt, sweet, sour. And
5: there's okay, sour. Yeah. Right,
0: bitter. Bitter. Hot. Hot. Sour,
5: bitter,
1: but hot But fat and it,
0: provides that mouthfeel thing that every food chemist in the world is But that's not a survival streaking. thing, is it,
1: mouthfeel?
0: But it's yes, what it is. encourages is it sweetnesses, you. But it's what encourages you to eat Fatty foods. I'm like. not against, I'm, mind you,
5: I'm not against sweetness or saltiness or fattiness
0: Me either. I love I'm those
5: I'm all I'm saying is it's as, it's as if you had, well, if all music was the blues, it's just three chords. Yeah. There's an awful lot of notes, there's an awful lot of kinds of music. There are, uh-huh. There's herbal food, there's things that have a garden taste to them. Um, is that like barnyard? Uh,
0: For a no, bar, no, no, I go as more funky. Although I think of some cheeses funky. as, as yeah. barnyard cheeses. There's even wine that has barnyard flavor notes. To well, it Well, so
5: much of the things that we find delicious and irresistible are kind of corrupt and in, uh, in, in, uh, in the good sense of the word. Yeah, I mean it's decaying grapes. That's and right. Decomposing pork. That's your best ham in the world. Milk? Cheese. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah, I, mean, I think uh, and as McGee, a
0: cheeseaholic, I can totally speak to you that. You got it.
1: How, how McGee talks about these things? Yeah,
5: about, I, I think uh, he uses the word corruption being at the basis of so many of the things we love. <laughs> to- tobacco. I mean, a great cigar yeah. uh, is an aged fermented thing. Yeah, yeah. Chocolate. You ain't going to have chocolate oh, yeah. if you don't ferment your cacao beans. Correct. What about prosciutto? Absolutely.
0: Bingo. And fat. you've got the salt and fat yeah. component in that.
5: So my point is not that Pickles. you need to avoid sugar, salt, and fat. No. But it's the only thing that our food culture encourages us to go go toward, towards. And often, the fat is not of the best kind. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a big thing. Uh, the sugar it's is the not. The quality of yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, I'm all for sugar. I'm all for a great plum or an apple. I don't know how much high fructose... Or whatever they're going to end up calling it. Yeah, calling it now corn syrup.
1: Well, according
0: to Marion Nestle, who was a guest on our show a few months ago, uh, what happens to your body, whether you ingest high fructose corn syrup or whether you ingest pure sucrose, is absolutely identical. There is no difference in the way your body processes those two chemicals. But let me ask, fructose, do you recommend just against fructose and sucrose.
1: these three things in no, the but- culinary intelligent? and? And, and eating healthy is a big part of this book. Th- that's right. Do you recommend against these I do three not. things or in I'm moderation? I'm saying it's not
5: the only place to go.
1: I see. And where else would you go if not with uh, sweet and, and, and what were the three? Sweet?
0: Sweet, salty, and fatty. And
5: fatty.
1: Fatty is where everyone goes. So where else can one go?
5: Well, stuff that tastes great. Right now, I mean, you're not going to get anything that tastes smokier or more beautiful or, or <coughs> full or sweet than an end-of-the-season tomato. I mean, they're yeah. spectacular, uh, uh, apples in season, um, fish when they're running, you know, salmon mm-hmm. in the salmon spring and the fall, artists. stripers in the spring and the fall, uh, every, every natural food has a season. Uh, and the closer you can stay to the seasons, the more full the flavor, because things can be picked or harvested at their peak of flavor and be transported to the market before they lose flavor. There's no way. I've spoken to some of the biggest organic buyers, you know, in in America. There's no way you're going to pick an early girl tomato, in California in February that gets a two on you know the color scale, and have it be a five and taste like something when it gets to New York. It right, can't right. be done. It can't be done. Now, um, do you eat
1: less meat? As also, I mean, is that under the fat thing? I mean, is there? Uh, how do you say uh, to deal with? Hamburgers, steaks. Uh, well, what
5: I re- grass fed. I, I don't know. I don't know if I do or I don't. I don't eat. What I don't eat is uh, refined sugar. I mean, I get my my sweet out of uh, you know out of Natural sorghum sources. syrup. Uh, no, out of that's too old Actually, school. I, I like sorghum syrup. <laughs> to Tell you the truth, on a biscuit,
0: fruit uh, chocolate. <laughs>
5: uh, but meat meat needs to pass the who cares test. Let's start with that. That's what I was thinking Me? about. Mean, meaning it's got to taste great. Oh, say, yeah, yeah. I don't just want something that has the kind of the texture of beef.
0: Well, you don't see me shopping at McDonald's, yeah. I have to say. Uh, I do not eat commodity fast food hamburgers. For, for taste, because they do Although, taste sweet. When you sent me five pounds of ancient White Park ground beef for Christmas present last year. Yeah, you
1: ate that in one sitting? It
0: was the best hamburger <laughs> I have ever had. I had eight people over for dinner and we just everyone raved they were just blown away by how good this beef tasted even though it was just a hamburger
5: and it that has a funky taste to it you know there there's i mean it's got something of the land in it, something of the terroir.
1: Yes. Yeah, hamburger's a little uh soily and like it gets a little earthy in there like the rarer parts and stuff like that. It's always a little bit of a I surprise. I just thought it had
0: an incredibly great beefy taste, as good as any good steak. So meat can happen
1: beef. what? 5 days a week? Could it happen
5: three- I don't eat meat 5 days a week. I listen, it's not rocket science. Um if you look at how obese America has got and uh, countries that are following our path to economic development. Uh, uh, I mean, there's, there's more overweight people in India now, I believe, than there are people in the United States. God, they're
1: so gluttonous over there.
5: No, God. it's just that they've started it's, to drink soda and eat french
1: fries yeah, and allowed, potato chips. Yeah, they have
0: changed their, uh, yeah. Finally, and a country that we can look down vegetarian. upon for
1: the obesity issue. <laughs> <laughs>
5: why, why, but, did I say obese? Like, I God. meant overweight. Overweight. I meant overweight. Uh, it's a big problem in, in, in China as they as these nations go through what's called the nutrition transition.
1: Well, tell us about I the industrialization to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. When, of food chain. When
5: Bill was talking, um, I was th- it was, the term value meals and the term value uh, is a complete newspeak reversal of what I understand value to be because it seems to me as what they call they, you know, the dark empire calls yeah. value goes up it's in inverse proportion to uh, to nutrition to the and actual value yeah, to
0: your yeah, body.
1: Exactly. So it's the exact
5: opposite. You know, where's the value in the beef?
1: Well, what is uh, tell? I mean, our listeners' culinary intelligence is going to come out next spring or summer or uh, next fall. Next fall, uh, and tell us what it'll really be. I mean, we haven't really gotten into the heart of. The well, buck. I
5: was saying it's not a rocket science. I mean, the first, you can do some very big things right away, and you'll probably be healthier and way and way less. Well, take let's take exercise out of the equation. You have to do Thank that. Thank God. Oh, I no, okay. never to do mind. that. <laughs> but I'm not your gym coach. Refined flour, refined sugar are probably the two biggest culprits. And
1: where do we find those things? What about things? booze? Well, wait, wait, wait. Oh, no, booze are
5: good. Wait, don't
1: totally turn into a, a buzzkill right now. Let's just ask <laughs> where do people find these things? Uh, I white, mean, this is in white, candy bars. White bread. And white bread, like Wonder Bread and candy
5: bars. Wonder bread? candy bars uh any
0: sh- any sugary what about snacks. juices I mean, there's, the, oh yeah
5: juice what really about bad. orange juice Tropicana orange juice if it's, got bad? Pu- if it's pulp in it it's okay if it doesn't have pulp in it i stay away from it interesting because, because the pulp
0: adds fiber darling
5: yeah it's just sugar that goes straight into you your liver the that the goes fiber. straight into your blood and pulp
1: stops the uh, pulp
0: uh, makes bad you effects. synthesize it more slowly so that it does not turn Even if it's tropicam- into sugar, yeah. and it doesn't boost If it your doesn't have level. pulp,
5: I mean, it's just, uh, juice is processed food. It's not as, as processed as white flour, but it's processed, which means it's going to go through your system faster, and it's going to get into your bloodstream and your liver faster, and you're going to put fat on.
1: Now, is there an eating less component to this, or no? Because you, you talk about eating different things and making up for past ways of doing eat, things. Eat,
5: eat till you're satisfied. I think if you eat things that aren't particularly healthful or nutritious you have a tendency to seek satisfaction by eating more I could give Mm -hmm. you, as you know from your own uh, you know, from Heritage Foods Meat three great slices of uh, a ribeye, Yeah, I'm done I don't need a whole steak I really feel great, I've had a meat experience as to booze yeah, I mean what I did was I cut out the white flour I cut out the sugar
0: okay, I can do that
5: uh, I went off potatoes, all right?
0: Oh, mm. I love potatoes, Peter. We, we, can, we can talk about that. And they have that. nutritional nah, value. They don't.
5: We can but talk about it. I, I can give up a potato. They spike the glycemic index, as they say, Yeah. Uh, really quickly. I'd love to be able to keep eating them, but I don't eat them the way I used to. As for booze, I think if you want to start to get control of your diet and your weight, my recommendation is one, two glasses of wine or whatever is the equivalent of that.
1: Really? Or drink more hardcore.
5: Don't go that's opposite. what I
1: do. go, go, I go a martini, on the vodka a gin diet, gin martini, and then you're great. I mean, that you, you one, kill of the, one, one of those. One of those. Yeah.
0: I do the vodka diet vodka rather with than diet poor beers. It's great. Does the job.
5: <laughs> it did it right now. Now I was.
0: Oh, well, I had a pink drink. I was too. thinking
5: about. Uh, so you so you cut the fat out. I mean, people. That's the first thing they do. And so, oh no! A couple of years ago, someone showed me the Aero Latte that you can foam your milk with your cappuccino. Yeah, yeah. Is that realize. that
1: little blow blowing?
5: It, no, it's, wind like no thing. It's, a, it's a little tiny beater. It costs oh, right, eight right. ninety five and it makes your life better. I know. Yeah. So I said, okay, I can start making uh, you know a cappuccino at home, and it's easy, and I don't have to deal with that steamy nozzle all the time. Yeah, right. So I started doing it, and I drink with skim milk, so I can stay healthy and slim. Uh, so I would drink one, I would drink two. I'd end up drinking three, four cups of that a day. Uh, well, you know, uh, skim milk isn't water. Skim milk, milk has less calories than whole milk, but in a, a cup of skim milk, 90 calories. Yeah, that's still something All right? there, right? You're drinking three, four cups of that a day, you know, in your cappuccino. So can you drink black we- coffee? Would you recommend that? I drink coffee. What, what I drink now uh, is just regular coffee. Uh, with some milk in it, some whole milk in it. Yeah. But instead of 90 oh, right. calories per, per cup, I got about 30 calories per cup.
1: Right. And let me ask, uh, restaurants, um, Ann and I go out a lot, because I sell meats to about 40, 50 restaurants in the city, and, and she sells cheese to about 20, 30 restaurants. And so we're you know, always out, find ourselves out more than we'd like to be. And we haven't quite put our finger on what it is, but it always seems like we're tired the next day or, or feel a little... Like the food is oilier or something? I mean, is a restaurant meal inherently a little more unhealthy than a similar thing just done simply at home? Hey, restaurants
5: are going to load up on salt and, and, pop, fat. and butter. And butter. Butter, absolutely. Just to give you that bang because for it gives a taste.
0: You the fabulous flavor and mouthfeel.
5: And it's also what you expect. It's what you want. It's what you, know. It's,
0: it's, what, it's, you also, it's also what
5: you've come to expect in a restaurant.
1: Peter,
0: doesn't this come down to learning how to cook at home?
1: You can't Doing get away from it. Your
0: own cooking. Yes, is you crucial. can. No, just kidding. No, if you want to keep your diet simple yeah. and still really flavorful and Joan Dye is the same thing, you have to cook yourself. I'm
5: glad you mentioned that because that really is a big part of
0: it's things. It's huge. You By the way, we have Joan DiGasso okay.
1: and Marion Nessel on the same show. That's very exciting. I thought I would just slip that in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you us. think it hits an, uh, hits an L on the head? If people eat at home more, they'll be eating healthier? Well, is that a,
5: at, well, that's for sure. But also, you start to understand the way food goes together and the way flavors go together. To and When to. you go to a restaurant, you tend to order uh Steak. You know, more informally. Yeah. But
0: you're letting other people yes when you go to and when you go to a restaurant without being able to cook or without having any knowledge about cooking you're letting somebody else do the driving for you. So you're not even able to make an informed choice. And they're going to take shortcuts. And they're going to make it taste as great as they possibly can and that means including cream and cheese and butter not that I don't love all of those things and encourage restaurants to use them whenever possible, but on a regular basis, two squares or one square a day, it's not, it's not the weight loss program. There's
5: also the issue of, uh, of portion size. Yeah. Uh, Melinda and I went to see this show. Uh,
0: Melinda's very slim and trim, by the she way.
5: She sure is. Uh, the, uh, Jerry Seinfeld directed that uh, Colin Quinn is in. It's a, a history of the world. At huh. uh, least, at least a few things out, but it gets most of it in in about ninety minutes. And it was on the Lower East Side, and we decided to walk back to our home in Cobble Hill, a couple miles from nice the Upper West Side to, East, to e- Lower East. East Side. Lower
1: East Side to Okay, East college, actually, yeah. So yeah. it's a two-three miles.
5: Yeah, so it's a nice summer night over the Brooklyn m- Bridge. It's great. 40 minutes. And we ended up walking down uh, Mulberry Street, Little Italy, which I haven't done in a long time, and. It's become, uh, you know, Italian Italian land, uh, where there used to be a few shops and some coffee places and ravioli store. It's one restaurant next to another. It's Disneyland yes, yeah, totally. of uh, yeah. Italian It's culture. what tourists think but of they all Italy look, as being. It looks, like, it looks like Italy up to a point. The people serving you, they're Italian. They have an Italian way about inviting you into the restaurant. The decor is Italian. And I said... Myself, but there's something out of the corner of my eye that doesn't look Italian here, uh, and what it was was the plates. All waiters would be carrying three, four plates at a time. Mm-hmm. They'd be like you know, twelve-inch plates, covered wall to wall with food dripping off of it, almost. Yeah. You'll never see that in Italy. never. you saw no white on these plates, yeah <laughs> um, which means people go into these restaurants and they want a whole mound of pasta and a giant piece of meat and uh,
0: well do you do you remember that restaurant Carmine's? That opened up uh, on the Upper West Side still exists. Yeah, that was always a fun oh, place yeah. to go. That oh, had yeah, huge yeah, yeah. portions. Oh my God, they burnt the garlic. You could smell it for. Oh, I, couldn't, I mean, I like the guys who own it, but oh my God, the food was just really. Anyway, they started. They were one of the first restaurants, and I guess they opened in the mid '80s. The it was called Family Style Dining, and they these plates of food would come out that were enough for four people. And after you had been there, made the mistake of going there once or twice and over ordering to a degree that was absolutely astonishing, you kind of got the thing. But the point is is that they... They really pushed that huge mound of pasta or the giant mound of calamari or whatever it was. It was like obscene amounts of food for two people or four people, even if you only ordered two dishes. It so was just crazy. So you think crazy. you're getting
5: more value.
1: Yeah, yeah, you think you're getting more value. It's sad. Peter, I, I, I have to ask, what's this issue you have against Fernet Branca? Uh, talking he, about you it found really. me out. He's against it.
0: Yeah, this is not, how we do a good show. It's
1: not good, he
0: said. He's like,
5: no one really likes
1: You're it. You're
0: pretending. That's that's
5: <laughs> Well, you know, It's listen, I'm a father. I have a 25-year-old daughter who works at a cousin restaurant to this one at Prime Meats. Uh-huh. And she and her uh, colleagues also drink uh, Fernet. Apri- I just never liked it that, that much. I don't like digestives that much. Um, they have a medicinal kind of almost
1: quality to it. I feel, that I'm, I feel
0: them. that I'm, uh, you know, doing something good for myself when I when I have a shot of. <laughs> well, well, no, yes, you, you
5: do, Katie. Keep thinking, that. <laughs> but it's not unalloyed goodness. I don't know if I'm going to have something alcoholic. I want. I'd have a good glass of wine, a beer, good some, glass some of Maker's wine. Mark, some
1: Maker's Mark, exactly. Well, so um, and that bitter foods though, do you not like those in general? Because I mean, Fernet's dominant. Uh, well, taste is bitter, right? I, I, bitter has its role, you know, um, in like uh, broc- uh, broccoli,
5: Rob, or radicchio, or something. Absolutely, I, I think what you know in a balanced meal. I think what bitter does is, if you have these overwhelming tastes, especially unctuous ones, right. like you get with meat. Yeah. If you have bite after bite of that, your palate's going to get overwhelmed. You're going to get less enjoyment out of bite number three than you did out of bite number one.
1: Right. But when you it's have like the first puff of a cigarette.
5: Uh, it's as the I best. recall. Uh, <laughs> but if you have something bitter, it tends to cut off that flavor. You know, you get the taste. You get the mouthful. Mm-hmm. The bitter kind of washes out the palate the same way the red wine will.
4: Yeah.
5: And then your next, your next mouthful is going to be you know a virgin yeah. bite again. Sometimes I don't revelation. think wine does that you
1: know like I like a Barbaresco which is more acidic or something or fruity or something whereas a Barolo is so round it's almost doesn't give me a respite it's almost like more of the very thing I like least about meat which I love but it's just too much of something too much roundness and this and that whereas I want something to cut against it like he says Interesting. maybe Barbaresco is a bitter Maybe it has Maybe. a bitter quality because it kind of like well
5: tannins are, are bitter. I mean that's that's yeah. why we like chocolate. Yeah, uh, right. I mean that's and that's why it accepts uh, sugar so well because it you know there's a very bitter component to it.
1: Oh,
4: but yeah. sugar can also, also be a palate
5: cleanser,
1: right? I mean, don't they use sorbets and uh, mid courses to?
5: I think it's the acid and the, and the cold because it's sorbet, not ice cream, right?
0: Well, and uh, wasn't it in medieval, fe- or in 19th, 18th and 19th century dining, you frequently had sort of like a grapefruit granita or something mm-hmm. like that that would be literally a palate cleanser well, of course, to prepare nobility, you for the next five courses.
1: The nobility for special occasions used to do things called entremets, which was yeah. between courses oui. uh, or subtleties uh, in England, they called them. And those were mid, uh, almost palate cleansers, but they were performance pieces. They were spectacles that would get wheeled into the dining room. So it provided a time, I guess, distance for taste. And it also provided allegory or there was always a message in these food sculptures. So they have their own palate cleansers uh, in, in a different but way too. Bro-
5: broccoli, andive, uh, yeah. radicchio, uh, artichokes, grapefruit, yes. they all have that element which tends to balance out overwhelming broad flavors.
1: Well, wow. So interesting. I mean, uh, it's the only reason we don't ask Peter to come in more often is because it's socially awkward. I mean, he'll think we're stalking him or something. But we wish but he actually, would come I was once just a month.
0: Thinking to myself, I, I we... love coming here.
5: You
1: okay.
0: guys are great, Peter. We didn't get to talk to you about the four themes of our new season, Oh and we really—I would love to get your feedback on those. And if, so that's an excuse to invite you back. Yeah, because yeah. Patrick, yeah. it's not just
1: this season; it's the whole future. Patrick
0: and our executive producer Jack Inslee, and I sat down and came up with. Four basic things that we want to ask every guest: food philosophy, which we've sort of—that's our catch-all, yeah, um, which includes like bellwethers, you know, people who have changed things about the food industry, agriculture, and different, you know, diverse ways Especially of growing meat. things, um, uh, distribution and marketing and marketing
1: because that drives everything.
0: And our last thing was.
1: Obviously, not a very important one. No, it was. Huge sexual important. intercourse. Yeah. Sexual intercourse. <laughs> Katie, let's get at it. We only have four minutes. That's plenty of time.
0: Come on, Jack. What was it? What was our fourth thing? It was food the most philosophy,
1: marketing and distribution, agriculture, agriculture. And well, it was, oh, growing the movement.
0: Growing the movement. Which is every inherent in everything we talk about. That's most important one. Yeah. Can and so, I... growing the movement was kind of like why we had the RCAF guy on today.
5: He was great. I gotta say, I meant to say this at the at the beginning. Remember in Cool Hand Luke when the cons are all out there and there's this beautiful girl washing Lucille! the car
4: Lucille!
5: sitting here in this uh, uh, at Roberta's and watching these pizzas and salads and fried <laughs> chicken <laughs> come rocketing out of I
4: at us hundred Lucille. Yeah. I am, uh, I, I, know, am right? I am I am hungrier
1: than I've been. Well, we'll wrap it up uh, for year. you. But um, it's been so much fun having. Now, next week, we have, of course, the Heritage Party. So the guests on the radio are going to be Brian Kenny from the from Hearst Ranch. Ranch he Alex. calls himself the XL Cowboy because he's always running yeah, he's XL spreadsheet Sheets. spreadsheet cowboy, right. Leaping Waters Farm, Alec Bradford, Ancient White Park, the true aristoc- uh,
0: aristocrat of the cattle industry. Aristocrat yep. of
1: the cattle industry. Cattle Sam breeds. Edwards will actually not be here. Oh no, um, Dan Purdy and his. <gasps> and we wife. have
0: lots to say about Dan Purdy, who local is leading the movement in upstate Everybody New York. Everybody keeps to lamenting, "Where are the local
1: slaughterhouses?" Dan him.
0: Purdy is doing. The
1: they job. should write an article about him because wow. he's doing it. I haven't had his ham. And then uh, Paradise Locker Meats make great sausages, which of course that's, Roberta's that's, has been using yep. a lot these days, and, and love it. Uh, good old. Um, Craig Good, who raises Duroc pork, and he loves to say "Durocks du-rock, do rock,"
0: which I agree with them. They do.
1: He is such a uh, uh, a nice, sweet, religious he's man. From Iowa. I no, always Missouri? tease him that his house is part of the meth highway. And <laughs> he's always like, "What are you talking about?" And then we're really honored. I mean, our show. Um, I mean, Jack will tell you, um, Dave Arnold. What a great show! People can call in and ask anything about. Cooking or culinary or tool. I mean, literally, there is yeah. no question this guy cannot answer. And he's going to be making Maker's Mark cocktails. We're really proud to have Maker's Mark as a sponsor. And Six Point is also a sponsor. Six Point
0: Craft Ales will be joining. it will be all you can eat, all you can drink from all of those great producers. This is Saturday, And it's only $100. It's all you
1: can eat. Think about it. How many bad restaurants you could go to and spend $100. Yeah, no Amen. kidding. Amen.
0: Absolutely. And um, it's
1: fun that Gabe is working with all these farmers. Because he's like, oh, you're doing a heritage event. That's great. I'm like, you have to actually work with 14 different purveyors. He's like, oh, brother. <laughs>
0: That's right, Frank from Good Shepherd Ranch is going to be bringing some of his poultry. Yeah,
1: we have a uh, brisket coming, we have ribeye, we oh, have I'm prosciutto, excited. we have chicken, we have sausages, we have shoulder and smoked fish from Acme smoked fish right here in Brooklyn. Jack, anything that we need to announce on the network? I mean, do we have like Michael Jordan coming in or something like that?
0: Steve
1: Pope. We have Steve so We know Pope. Steve Pope of course, but I was just saying, do we have anything this week flash cash? What a great show!
0: Beer sessions with Are you Jimmy Carbone. Me?
4: Yeah, we're promoting New York City's Craft uh, Beer Week all week. That's oh yeah, right.
1: and we're also promoting the Heritage Radio Network party. Jack, don't forget. No, but the Craft yeah, Beer
0: Week is is kicking off on Friday, September twenty fourth, running through Sunday, October twenty. Uh, excuse me, October third. And uh, Whole Foods Market at the Bowery is going to be hosting a beer and food pairing event in their beer room with Chef Jacques Gauthier of Park Slopes Palo Santo awesome. South uh, cooking American up some event. of his South American foods So, you know, don't miss this. Check it out on the Whole Foods website. Um, the food tasting goes from 5 to 7. Beer will continue until 9. And with the Craft Beer Week Passport, you get $3 off a 64-ounce growler refill. And if you don't know what a growler is... It's a great big jug of beer. Well, thanks to
1: big... Bill Bullard, thanks to you, Katie. Thanks yep. to Peter Thank you very and Melinda. Much
0: Peter Kaminsky and Melinda Kaminsky for coming in and talking with us today. Thank Go you
1: to you rcaf. Uh, rcaf, r-cafusa. r-cafusa.org and check out Culinary Intelligence, news about that in Not 2011. Not to mention Peter's
0: others, many, many wonderful books. And thanks to Jack Inslee, our executive producer, and Nat Wiener, who engineered for us today.
1: We'll be back next week with, with the Heritage show. Party guests. <laughs>
3: there's a service Chef Steve, and welcome to this part of the edition on our Talking About the foods that are heritage foods that are talking about poultry, talking about the State Fair. Just went to the State Fair last Sunday and had a wonderful time. It brought back a lot of memories for me as a kid growing up, looking at all the different exhibits and things that go on at a State Fair, the carnivals, the food, and, of course, the poultry. Went through the poultry barn, noticing all the different heritage breeds, and it was just really kind of exciting to look at. The, the surgeons of young kids working with those uh, poultry, uh, people on championship roll, exhibiting their very best of best breeds. And it kind of uh, kind of is giving a nice full circle to the idea that if we continue to work the way we are with the heritage breeds, that we will actually rec- reclaim some of that past. As it goes, we're finding out there's a lot of problems that do exist with the uh, with the industry today, we're seeing a lot of things about eggs and, and food and problems with food and mass production. And it's kind of nice to see a lot of the different people across the nation that are doing their own thing or utilizing good heritage food. I want to mention that Molly O'Neill's book, The One Big Table, will be uh, out for your uh, Reading on uh, November sixteenth, I believe, is one of the actual releases, and we're very excited about that. With Molly, I worked with her on that book, and it's—it's—I've uh, it's, uh, seen the release on it, and it truly is uh, everything about heritage and, and historical cooking and people across the entire nation. So it's given me another good feeling about how things are in our country and how things are about causing us to to come together a little bit more and more with food. Uh, the other thing that I want to talk about today is a, uh, is a little bit of the cooking as this weather starts to change. It's about 50 degrees here in Kansas right now, and we've had some really nice, cool weather, which is a signature that fall is coming for us up in the northern, northeastern states. I'm sure it's coming a little bit sooner. But what happened this morning is that I woke up. There was a mist outside. It was very, very cool out, and so I immediately got up and took one of our chickens, one of our barred rock chickens, and did a recipe that is really very old, but it's very, very uh, nice, and it's great for cool weather. It's really not necessary for the extremely cold weather, but the cool weather. Uh, The recipe is basically a German recipe, and uh, it is uh, a baked chicken that you use uh, sauerkraut with, and you use... Different types of uh, sausages. Broadwurst is one of the best ones to use with it. There's other German sausages I like, but you could use Endul or any of the others that you want. You want a little spice with the uh, with it. But what you do is you basically. Uh, Bake the chicken in when you first put it in you want to seal it up for about uh, at 400 degrees for maybe 15 minutes eight, uh, 8 to 10 minutes I'm sorry. And once you get a nice little brown on that you're going to reduce the temperature reduce it back down. Cover the chicken up, let it bake for about an hour and a half at 350 maybe even 325 would work and then i take the sausages and i just lay sausages all around that uh, that chicken and again the, your your choice of flavors of sausage bratwurst seems to be one of the most favorite in the meantime i put that back into the oven let it cook for a while. You do not have to pre-fry the uh, sausages, because they will bake and and complete their cooking in the oven during that time. Uh, I also take uh, some sauerkraut, and actually we make our own sauerkraut here, which is a lot of fun, but you can use canned sauerkraut, and what you want to do is rinse it very, very good. You do not want to have as much uh, of the salt that sauerkraut produces. So it's... uh, it's just reducing that salt, but you still have some of the sauerkraut flavor in there, which is essentially the cabbage. I would go ahead and go back and open up the oven after about 30 minutes or so, and I put that sauerkraut in there, take some peeled potatoes, maybe a few carrots, and just your general seasoning, such as salt, pepper, all of that and seal it back up and cook it till it's done. And there's different ways to tell it when it's done, but one of the best ways is just to take the leg and move it around to see if it's very loose. If there's any juices coming out that are pink, you know that it is not done. Also, the the, uh, reliable thermometer is another good thing, and I like to take this particular recipe up to about 180 degrees uh, to make sure that it's really uh, absorbing all the moistures and, and cooking to its fullest. After that, Take it out of the oven. All you've got to do is have some good bread to serve with it, and you will have a great fall weather dish. Simple baked chicken. It's got to be heritage if it's going to be good. This is Chef Steve, and I'll talk to you again next week, and I hope everything is a good week for you. Bye now.